Today, we will be continuing a series in Paul's letter to the Colossians. The main purpose of Paul's writing this letter to the church in Colossae was to counteract false teaching that was running rampant in the Colossian church by hammering home the theme of the supremacy of Christ and the emptiness of false doctrine. Indeed, that is what we saw last week as Paul in verses 16 through 23 of chapter 2 systematically dismantled several different components of the false teaching in Colossae, pointing out its total emptiness and worthlessness in comparison with the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yet it is a common thread throughout the Pauline epistles that after addressing the urgent theological topics that caused him to write the letter, he turns to exhortation, painting a picture of how his readers should live their lives based on the theological truths that he has established. The passage we will be studying today, verses 1 through 4 of chapter 3, serve as a sort of transition between these two themes. In it, Paul sums up and draws on the theological truths contained within chapters 1 and 2 and uses them to establish the foundation for the moral exhortation that will make up chapter 3. Let's read the word of God together in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. This is the inspired, inerrant, infallible word of God. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that as you study your word that you would enlighten our minds, that you would Help us to understand what it is here that you are writing through the pen of the Apostle Paul. That you would help us not to understand it only theoretically, but that we would understand it in in such a way that affects our hearts, that affects our actions, that causes us to become more like your Son. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Our study today will be in two parts. Firstly, the Christian life, which is verses 1 and 2. And secondly, the Christian hope, verses 3 and 4. That's the Christian life and the Christian hope. When Paul here in verse 1 says, If then you have been raised in Christ... He is explicitly connecting our passage with chapter 2, verses 20 through 23 of Colossians, which we studied last week. Let's read those verses together again. 
If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. They have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. In these verses, Paul went to great pains to point out that to the Colossians that the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament no longer applied to them and that the rules and teachings of human traditions were worthless for them. Why? Because they were dead. Dead in Christ's death. The types and shadows of Old Testament ceremonial rules were fulfilled in Christ, and the rules and traditions of men cannot apply to the dead, to those who have passed on from the surface-level regulations of false religions to the true faith, to the true faith that has a real effect in the heart. In Christ, the debt for our sin is not only paid for, his righteousness is not only accredited to us, but there is also a process that has begun in our hearts. This is the work of sanctification, where the Holy Spirit day in and day out transforms our heart and our desires to become more and more like Christ and gives us the strength and the will to live a life that honors him. This is what Paul is talking about when he says that we are resurrected with Christ. We are made new and we are being made new. Together with Paul in Romans chapter 6 verse 1, we can respond to those who think that since we are saved, we can live however we want by saying, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. When speaking about this newness of life here in Colossians chapter 3, Paul points out two interrelated but different things that the believer should be doing. Seek the things that are above and set one's mind on the things that are above. We will take the second point first. What does it mean to set one's mind on the things that are above? above and to not set one's mind on the things that are here on earth. I assume most Americans here and maybe even some of the Germans will be familiar with the English saying that someone is too heavenly minded to be of any earthly good. 
Is that what Paul is talking about here? That we should simply sit around all day, not giving a care for anything that is happening in the world, and only meditating on heaven? There have certainly been sects of Christianity that have taken it to mean that. There have been hermits, monks, nuns, who have sequestered themselves away from civilization in an attempt to be heavenly-minded. But I don't think that that is Paul's meaning here in this passage. Instead, what I and what most commentators see here is Paul calling the believer to place their affections in the right place, to consider that that which is heavenly is more important than that which is on earth. Matthew Henry puts it this way in his commentary, things on earth are here set in opposition to things above. We must not dote upon them nor expect too much from them that we may set our affections on heaven. For heaven and earth are contrary one to the other and a supreme regard to both is inconsistent and the prevalence of our affection to one will proportionally weaken and abate our affection to the other. Jesus himself spoke about this very subject in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21, where he says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It is vital that the Christian has their priorities in order. This world is not our home. We are merely pilgrims, wanderers here, ambassadors of Christ in a foreign land. When we try to find our meaning, our identity, our purpose in this world, when we try to pile up wealth and fame in this world, when we try to fill our hearts with the entertainment and the enjoyable sins of this world, we are cheating ourselves and our God. And we are storing our treasures in a place where moths and vermin destroy. And we will be able to take none of it with us. As Job chapter 1 verse 21 says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. In a beautiful paradox, this heavenly mindedness does not lead to no earthly good but rather the opposite. While Paul points out, as we saw last week, that all the worldly and self-focused rules and regulations and asceticism of the false teachers does nothing to stop the indulgence of the flesh and of our sinful desires, keeping our minds focused heavenward does. Commentators point out that this positive 
rather the negative approach to combating sin is something that Paul often points to. We can see this in Romans chapter 12, verse 21, where he says, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. In Romans chapter 12, verse 14, But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. It is through this focus on Christ and on that which is spiritual that we are able also to seek the things that are above, as Paul says in verse 1, meaning that we can do the things that the Christian is called to do. We are freed and able to actually love our God and to love our neighbor, our heavenly-mindedness allowing us to do earthly good. William Henderson puts it beautifully in his commentary on this passage when he says, Those that seek to obtain these things that are above are not chasing phantoms or ghosts, but are gathering priceless treasures. They are not the kind of people who forget about their duty in the here and now. On the contrary, they are very practical, for the graces that have been enumerated enable them not only to gain victory upon victory in their struggle against fleshly indulgence, but also to be truthfully the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And what does that look like to be the salt of the earth, the light of the world? Verses 12 through 17 of this chapter, chapter 3 in Colossians, give a broad overview of what the result of this heavenly-minded, heavenly-focused, heavenly-oriented life should look like. Turn with me there if you are not there already. Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 17. Put on then... As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to what you indeed indeed you were called in one body and be thankful let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God and whatever you do in word or deed do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. What a beautiful and sobering list. What a kind of life to aspire to. And how far short do all of us fall every day of this list. Yet Jesus 
gives us an even fuller, even more all-encompassing, yet very condensed summary in Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 through 39. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. These are commandments which we can never live up to. And they are commandments for which all the rules and precepts and self-discipline of human religion and philosophy are inadequate both for bringing about outward compliance and utterly incapable of bringing about inward compliance. Brothers and sisters in Christ, true love for God and for our neighbor can only come through the salvation and regeneration that is found in Christ. And true growth in love for God and for our neighbor can only be found in the work of the Holy Spirit. Don't try to grow spiritually in your faith and in your walk with Christ by following rules and doing good works. Instead, focus your affections heavenward. Go before the Lord in prayer, read the word, receive the means of grace, for this is the basis from which we can obey God's commandments and do good works, the fuel for living a life that honors Christ. That brings us to our second and final point, the Christian hope. Up to this point in his letter to the Colossians, Paul has focused extensively on what has happened, the life and work of Christ on earth, the salvation of the believer, and the growth of the Colossian church. He has also focused extensively on what is happening, the love and hope that the Colossians had, the constant prayer of Paul and his companions for them, the struggle against false teaching, the necessity of being focused heavenward, yet the prospect of the future, the hope of the Christian had been left in the background, its presence felt, yet not fully there or explicitly spoken of. With Paul's focus on how the kingdom of God is here, but not so much on how the kingdom of God is not yet here. In verses 3 and 4, Paul finally makes explicit the hope of the Christian. The reason that our salvation is such joyous news. The reason for why our focus should be heavenward. The reason that we should embrace any number of sufferings and trials in this life without having our faith shaken. Let's read verses 3 and 4 again together. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. 
when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. The first phrase that sticks out here is that our life is hidden with Christ in God. What exactly does that mean? There are several different interpretations, most of which I think complement each other. In the one sense, the meaning of being hidden with Christ in God shows the degree to which we are united to Christ. He is paid for our sins. His righteousness is accredited to us. And through him, we have the right to enter the presence of God. In another sense, the idea of our lives being hidden with Christ shows the degree to which our salvation is secure. Just as that which is buried under the ground or locked in a safe, out of sight, is secure from those who would like to rob or destroy it, so does the fact that our very lives are hidden with Christ show that they are secure. As Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verses 38 through 39, Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The final sense, though, in which this can be understood is that it is referring to the world's understanding of our relationship with Christ. While it is possible for the world to see outwardly that we claim to be Christians, what we claim it means to be Christian, and how being a Christian affects our life, it is not possible for them to really know or to really see the inner experience of faith and the real transformation that occurs in regeneration. The worldview, values, and decisions of a Christian, based as they are on seeking the things that are above rather than the things of the world, ultimately make no sense to the non-believing observer. The Christian life seems to them to be misguided at best, and at worst, to be evil, condemning and disregarding as it does the things of the world. This last way of viewing the phrase, hidden with Christ in God, fits in well with what Paul writes immediately afterwards. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Due to this worldly misunderstanding of and hostility towards Christians, the life of the church has been marked by persecution. Believers all around the world and throughout history have been mocked, they've been discriminated against, forced into hiding, exiled, tortured, and martyred. Unlike most worldly philosophies and religions which promise your best life now, true Christianity, 
has often marked its adherence by suffering more than by anything else. And even for the Christian in a free and mostly tolerant society like modern-day Germany or the United States, those who attempt to really, truly glorify God and enjoy him forever, as the Westminster Catechism puts it, often find themselves marginalized and despised by a society that is built to glorify man. That this is allowed, that God tolerates this persecution of his people and the blasphemy of the world towards him does not indicate that Christians are foolish or wasting their lives. Nor does it show that God is not all-powerful. Rather, it is a remarkable display of God's patience. Every day that the sun keeps rising and setting and that the affairs of men continue as usual is a remarkable display of mercy from God. An opportunity for each and every man and woman to recognize that which is clear as day, that Jesus Christ is Lord. Every day that we as believers have on this earth is not a day for withdrawing from the world in revulsion, but a day for engaging it with grace and with love, faithfully and unflinchingly declaring the truth of the gospel and the truth of the word of God through our words and through our actions. Yet these days of mercy are not infinite. The martyrs in heaven are crying out to God day in and day out as we see in Revelation chapter 6 verses 10 and 11. O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Once the last of the elects are saved by the grace of God, and once the last of the martyrs foreordained by Christ is killed and meets his Lord and Savior, then Christ will return. He will return. The time of mercy will be over. The time of glory and of justice will begin. Jesus himself describes this in Matthew chapter 24, verses 29 through 31. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven 
the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The wicked will be condemned to an eternity of suffering that matches the infinitely great crime of refusing to acknowledge God as their king and Christ's people will be hidden no longer. We will receive what we have had hidden for us in Christ. We will appear with him in glory. All of the suffering and the pain and the grief and the sacrifices of this life will fade away and we will behold the purpose of all things before our very eyes. Let me end and leave us with this description of the scene of the wedding feast of the Lamb where Christ and his bride, the church, are finally all reunited in person by John in Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 through 9. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you and thank you for your greatness and your goodness to us. That though we may face trials and difficulties and persecution in this life, that we can look forward not with unsure hope, but with certain hope to the second coming of your Son and our Savior. To the end of this broken, sin-twisted world in the beginning of a new world where all things are made new and where we will be in your presence forever. Lord, we pray all these things in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.